Good morning, North Shore. This week, we're starting a teaching series on the book of James, and I'm really excited about it. The reason is, is the book of James is really relevant to the situation that we find ourselves in. With the worldwide pandemic, the quarantine we find ourselves under, doubts about um, the future of the economy, we're definitely enduring trials individually and in our families, as a church community, and internationally. And that's what James addresses first and foremost in the book of James. The early church was in the midst of some serious trials in the form of persecution, as we'll see. And our trials are quite different. But nonetheless, this book, as I said, is going to be really relevant. And I mentioned this when we started our series on Philippians, that as we study these books together, and we think through them um, Sunday mornings, and we think through them in our life groups. Hopefully, we'll also find time during the week to be individually reading these things ourselves. Both Philippians and also the book of James are shorter epistles, which are really easy to read in one sitting and to get a feeling for the whole uh, content of the letter as these apostles sent them to the churches that received them. And so, we can take those in in, in a one whole sitting. You can take them in pieces, a chapter at a time, and really think deeply about them. And then as we meet in life groups and as we talk individually, um, I just encourage everybody to be challenging one another with what we're learning in the book of James, to be encouraging one another, and to be fellowshipping around teachings that James gives us in this letter. Um, it's a particular tool at this time and Scott has led us in this prayerfully, um, and, and I'm, I'm so glad. It's a particular tool that the Holy Spirit is going to use uh, at this time for our church community, and I hope we'll take advantage of the time that we have. Um, it's not something that we expected. We didn't expect it to be using. We didn't expect to be using our time in the way that we are now. But we do find ourselves in this situation, and I'm very hopeful that the Lord will do a lot in terms of growing our community. In any case, I'm really encouraged to talk to you about the book of James. I'm so excited. Um, let me just tell you uh, and get into the personality of who James is. First and foremost, as some people aren't aware of this, James is the younger brother of Jesus, which is just a stunning thought. He is Jesus's half-brother, the son of Mary and Joseph, whereas, of course, Jesus is merely the son of Mary and has no earthly father, um, nonetheless, James is legitimately Jesus's brother. And we first encounter James in the Gospels. John tells us in John 7, 5, that his brothers didn't even believe in him, didn't believe in his ministry, which is an embarrassing comment on Jesus's ministry. At various times, Jesus had a number of followers and, and drew enormous crowds. And at other times, he drove the crowds away with the things that he had to say. They seemed crazy. They seemed certainly blasphemous. And there were times when only his disciples were with him. Well, his brothers apparently were embarrassed by him. Mark tells us in, in Mark 3, 20 and 21, that his, his family thought that he was out of his mind, that he was insane. So his younger brother was certainly not a believer not a follower, not a disciple. 
The next time in church history that we encounter James's name is actually in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 1 Corinthians is written by Paul. He writes it sometime in the middle of the first century, and it's looking back. And as he's looking back in 1 Corinthians 15, the first thing he does is he recounts a creed concerning the resurrection. We just thought about the resurrection last week at Easter. And he says, here's what we believe concerning the resurrection, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was witnessed by Cephas and the 12. Cephas is Peter's Hebrew name. So that's the creed. And then he adds to the creed a couple notes. After he mentions that Jesus was witnessed after Peter and the 12, he says Jesus was also witnessed by 500 brethren in Jerusalem, and they're not all dead yet. In other words, he's telling the Corinthians, if you want to know for certain, I'm not trying to control this message. Go check for yourself. It's a short boat ride from, from Corinth to Jerusalem. Uh, there are 500 brethren who saw Jesus alive in Jerusalem after his resurrection. You can ask them. And then he tacks on another important witness to the resurrection. He says, James, James and the apostles. And then finally, he says, I, Paul, saw Jesus alive as well. So he mentions Peter, 500 brethren, James, and then himself, which is a critical list of witnesses. So we find that James goes from being embarrassed of his brother, thinking that his brother has lost his mind, to being a witness to Jesus' resurrection. And as we'll see, a leader in the early church. I don't know what it would take for, um, for one to believe that their older brother were the Son of God, the Lord of glory. Uh, I don't think anyone in the world is in that position to say that. Even if you have a great brother, even if you really respect your brother, that sort of standard is not something that any human could meet. And James was apparently in a position to be able to say that his brother is truly the Son of God and the Lord of glory, which is a stunning thing. So church history um, in the early part of the first century, Jesus's ministry is going on. James, Jesus's younger brother, is embarrassed of him. And immediately after the resurrection, we have this testimony that James is uh, a believer. He's a witness to the resurrection. And as we go forward in very early church history, we come to an extremely important event in Acts chapter 7. In verses 54 through 60, we see the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is this young evangelist, and he is preaching, and the Pharisees hear what he has to say. And Stephen gives this incredible summary of Old Testament history and places Jesus at the center of all of God's revelation and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. And the Pharisees find this to be blasphemous. So you remember that they stoned Stephen and they killed him there. He was martyred. And this was a jarring, shocking event to the early church. He was a uh, major, important, and beloved member of the Jerusalem church. And this apparently was the catalyst that kicked off a major movement of persecution against the Jerusalem church. In Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 3, uh, 
after talking about the stoning of Stephen, this is what Luke says. He says, Saul approved of his execution. Saul oversaw the execution of Stephen. This Saul is Saul of Tarsus, who will become the Apostle Paul. So this is what happens. Luke says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, as we'll see in the book of James, that's exactly what James is talking about, that <clears throat> they're being arrested, that they're being persecuted, that they're being scattered, that they're facing serious trials. The book of James was likely written at this moment, actually before Paul even had become a Christian. James is writing to these scattered Christians. And if you turn to James uh, 1, uh, this week, we're just looking at verses 1 and 2, which is merely the greeting of the book of James. James says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That's how he opens the letter. And in these two verses, we see that James is a servant of God, fair enough, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that's his older brother. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to call his own brother Lord, Kurios, is to identify him with the one true God, which is just, again, a stunning thing. It would take a resurrection for anyone to believe that or their older brother. And then he addresses it, as I said, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The 12 tribes is uh, a reference to Israel, as you know, the, the Jewish nation. And the dispersion would refer to the dispersion, the scattering of the Jewish nation. Um, at various times in uh, the history of Israel, the nation of Israel was, in a sense, scattered. The great scattering or the great dispersion would have come at the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem, uh, Babylon uh, conquered Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, and deported the population of Jerusalem to Babylon. And that's the great dispersion. James is equating and comparing the scattering of the church to that dispersion. And so he's largely talking to a Jewish community which indicates that this is very early. This is very early in church history, well before the um, great uh, inflowing of a number of non-Jewish or Gentile believers into the church. And so he's talking again to largely Jewish community. They would have understood this context of being in dispersion and seeing themselves um, in God's history as being uh, God's people who are now being scattered for God's purposes. And again, the catalyst for the scattering was the execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And I think the book of James was written just at this time. So if you're reading the book of Acts, a great way to read it would be to read up till Acts chapter 7, take a break, read the book of James and then come back to Acts chapter 8, because chronologically, um, that's how things came about. In Acts chapter 8, what happens is we see the, um, uh, actually moving into Acts chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul. 
And Saul, <clears throat> on the road to Damascus, gets um, a letter of authority by the um, Jewish authorities to go and, and uh, arrest Christians in Damascus. And on his way, he has a vision of Jesus Christ on the road, and that derails his, his whole plan. The church was very afraid of Saul, but they heard the story that he had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so one believer went to him very bravely and prayed for him, and scales fell off his eyes. And at that moment, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the evangelist. Now, in Galatians 1, Paul gives us the same testimony that we read about in Acts 9. So Acts 9, Luke tells us about Saul's conversion. In Galatians 1, Paul tells us that he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. He spent three years in Arabia. And then after that time, he went to Jerusalem, and he met with two people. And guess who those two people were? They were the heads and central figures of the church. He says, I met only Peter and James. Peter being Jesus's main um, and, and most notable disciple, and James, Jesus's own younger brother, the two central figures in the early church. Galatians 2, he says that again, he went with Barnabas to Jerusalem another time, and he met with the pillars of the church, James, he mentions first, then Peter, and then John. And so these are the central figures and leaders of the early church that Paul mentions. And he says that they offered the right hand of fellowship to, to Barnabas and me. Um, and so, whereas James, Peter, and John had a ministry to Jews, they recognized the same spirit and the same ministry to Gentiles had been given by God to Paul and Barnabas. And they agreed <clears throat> to endorse Paul's missionary journeys. And you remember Paul's first journey with Barnabas, and he's going through uh, Asia Minor, that country we would now call it Turkey, and he's preaching in, in various churches. And many Jews are coming to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law. And many Gentiles who have no real knowledge of um, the history of Israel, or the Old Testament covenant, they're also coming to believe that Jesus is the true Lord, the Son of God, come to give himself for the sins of the world. They're coming to Christ as well. And so you've got these two very different cultures, in fact, a variety of different cultures, coming into contact. And we've talked about this over the last few weeks. In fact, it's come up a number of times. You'll remember at that time we encountered the Judaizing controversy in which some very uh, zealous um, Jews and converts to Christianity insisted that in order to be a true Christian, a true follower of Jesus Christ, it was vital to become circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. In other words, if you want to be a Christian, you have to first become culturally a Jew. And Paul and Barnabas said, that's not what's happening. And that is not what God is doing. As we're preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit is falling on them just as the Holy Spirit fell on us. And so this controversy comes up. And so what did Paul and Barnabas do? In Acts 15, we see they go to Jerusalem to ask for an authoritative word from the central pillars of the church and get a letter that they can bring back to these churches in Asia Minor. And who speaks at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15? The two central figures of the church. First Peter speaks, 
And then James renders a decision and they draft it up in a letter and take it back to those churches and squash this Judaizing controversy. Well, again, it, it's so stunning. James goes from being a doubter, embarrassed by his brother, to a believer, to a central figure and leader of the early church. In fact, so important that Paul himself, this incredible evangelist with these gifts of God and this wisdom and knowledge of God's revelation, this incredible interpretation and commentary on the history of Israel seen in Jesus Christ. This whole ministry that Paul has, he defers to these central figures, Paul and James, as um, really authoritative voices in the early church. It's, it's so amazing, the, the person that we find in James. So that's the background of the writing of the book of James and the person who gives us the book. The book itself is written um, almost like Hebrew wisdom literature. In Hebrew wisdom literature, for example, the book of Proverbs, we get a number of very wise statements. It, it's almost like individual pearls strung together to form a, a beautiful necklace. Um, wisdom literature often comes off that way. It's not narrative. It doesn't have an overall theme necessarily. Um, it has a kind of rough theme, but it's individual thoughts kind of strung together, certainly to be read together, to be imbibed whole, and to be understood in a context. But it certainly comes in little chunks. And the book of James is written that way. Jesus uh, seemed to have a serious influence on his brother, although his brother was probably ignoring his ministry as best he could, was influenced by Jesus's teachings, um, for example, the Beatitudes and, and other wisdom style teachings that Jesus gave. And apparently is also influenced by Solomon and the Old Testament revelation there that we find in the wisdom literature. And it seems like James teaches that way and speaks that way. So, as you're reading the book of James, you might be wondering, what's the overall theme? What's the big, bigger purpose? He comes off a bit differently than perhaps John or Paul that can be read as having a larger theme or purpose in their writing. As it turns out, James has a number of themes. One of the most important themes he has is the relationship between faith and works. Faith and works. Now, let me just say something about the word works. The word works is usually used pejoratively in the New Testament as a kind of a bad thing. Um, Paul will tell us, we're not saved by works, but we're saved by faith. Works meaning works of righteousness. The good things that we do to try to prove ourselves to others, and ultimately perhaps even try to prove ourselves to God. He says, that's foolishness. We certainly are made for good works in Jesus Christ. We ought to be doing things that are laudable, things that are good, things that are helpful and giving and kind, um, those things we ought to be doing, but we shouldn't be trusting in those things as if we're earning our way with God. God, you've got to accept me because look at what a great person I am. It's not the Christian way of thinking. We say, Lord, we know that you will accept me because what you have done in and through your son, Jesus Christ, I trust in him and I'm hidden in him. 
because you love him and received him, you receive me in him. That's the Christian attitude, which Paul expresses. James has something in, in uh, James chapter 2 that's, at first glance, seems to be a little bit out of step with that kind of thinking. What he says is, faith without works is dead. So he seems to be saying that faith does include works. Now, there's a difference between the way that James and Paul are using the word works. Paul is speaking of works of righteousness, works in which we try to prove ourselves to God. James is using the word works in a slightly different way. But the more important term here is the term faith. And it's been wildly misunderstood, I think, in the modern era. What do I mean by the modern era? Uh, I'm a philosopher of religion. And when we speak of the modern era, we're not speaking of the 21st century, by no means. The modern era actually starts in the 17th century. That's when modern thinking begins. And you might think that's really out of date. Uh, people in the 17th century thought in a very different way than we think today. Uh, not very modern. But there is a big distinction between the way people began thinking, at least at the highest levels of um, uh, of thought and debate and um, uh, scholarly discussion in the 17th century and many of the previous centuries. There's definitely a huge distinction. And we see this distinction um, in, the, in the sense that modern philosophy at that time takes a, an overtly secular term. And what I mean by that is that modern thinkers ceased to see themselves as being within the context of God's world and God's providence. They ceased to see themselves as understanding and viewing the world in the context of what God has revealed, but they saw themselves as the center of their own understanding and the final standard by which they judge and understand things. Rene Descartes, for example, is thought to be the father of modern thinking. And in his philosophy, if you know something about this, you know this very famous statement, I think, therefore I am, he doesn't make any theological references. He wasn't against God's revelation or anything like that, but when it really comes down to, in a fundamental way, knowing what we know, he reverts to the self. And he says, first and foremost, I know that I exist, so I'm gonna start with the self and I'm gonna build up from there. And that was his project. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that per se, but it is a very different way of thinking. And this is gonna have some consequence as things move forward. Two very influential modern thinkers that came after Descartes, David Hume and Immanuel Kant. Now, David Hume, uh, he's a late 18th century figure, again, really out of date. And we might say he doesn't have much to do with the 21st century. It's not like kids are reading him and being influenced directly by him, but we are directly influenced. In fact, these people had such a profound impact on modern thinking and the way that we think now, things that we just take for granted, that we just think are common sense, if they're part of the air that we breathe, ancient people didn't think this way at all. And it's not that the ancient people were wrong. They just, in fact, thought differently. And we just think, again, that it's just commonsensical. It's not commonsensical. It is just the way that these people thought. And now we take it in and others around us agree. And again, it, it just happens to be the intellectual environment that we're in. And so what happened with these individuals, uh, David Hume really doubles down on this emerging modern secularism. And he says, 
one is not in a good intellectual position to believe any religious claims on the basis of testimony. How do we know that God raised Jesus from the dead? Again, we thought about this last week when we were thinking about Easter. How do we know that? We know that on the basis of the testimony of the apostles. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul told us that it was so. But what do your senses tell you? This is the modern perspective. We believe what our sense experience tells us. We're not going to just blissfully reason to things with our heads and think about things and give these philosophical arguments. We're going to use these visceral um, uh, senses, encountering a real concrete world. We're going to know things because we see it with our own eyes, because we touch it, because we hear it. We're going to apply our senses, and this is the scientific mode of things. But what David Hume is doing is he's narrowing down all knowledge to the scientific mode of things. And he makes this very influential argument from a book called Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding and a section called On Miracles. He gives a very influential and well-known argument that no one is allowed to believe, for example, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the basis of testimony because our continued, repeated experience of things, our sense-based experience of things tells us that dead people stay dead. And you can't just go on the ancient testimony of some peoples that are very distant from us, that in one case, a dead man didn't stay dead, but came back. Our repeated sense-based experience of things is going to swamp that one testimony. That's not to say it didn't happen, but you're not allowed to believe in it. So he gives a bona fide argument for agnosticism. After him comes Immanuel Kant, and Immanuel Kant is very much influenced by David Hume. In fact, Kant says, when he read Hume, he was so stunned, he said, Kant, awoke me from my dogmatic slumbers. He said, it was like I was intellectually asleep and, and, and Hume awoke me. And so in reading Hume, he develops his own very influential philosophy. And it might be the influential modern philosophy that has really sort of, um, well, I would say poisoned the air in which we breathe. And he uh, says that everything that we know, if you know it, if it's scientific, if it's worthy of being called knowledge, it's got to be rooted in the senses. You have to be able to see it. You got to be able to touch it. You got to be able to smell it and hear it, taste it. If you can't do that, then you can't know it. All knowledge begins in the senses. And since we can't see God, we don't hear God with our ears. We don't touch God with our hands. God is not a proper object of knowledge. This isn't an argument for atheism. It isn't to say that God doesn't exist, but it is to say that we ought to be agnostics that we cannot know God in this scientific sense. Therefore, theology is not a science. Revelation is not to be accepted. The deliverance of our senses is to be accepted. And <clears throat> this is the philosophy that he gives. When he moves on to talk about ethics, the philosophy of right and wrong, he says, now, wait a second. I do need to presuppose God because right and wrong don't make any sense in an atheistic world. There is no real distinction between a right and wrong, and there's certainly no motivation to do, do the right thing over doing the wrong thing. So in order for right and wrong to even have any sense to them, I've got to presuppose God. I can't prove God, but I've got to assume that God is. So it's wholly an assumption. Now we might say, well, that's a move in the right direction. That's good. But then he says this, it's very important. He says that I vanquished knowledge in order to make room for faith. So what he would say is that I have faith, I presuppose God, 
but I don't actually know that God exists. And that's very much the modern attitude. I think many Christians would say the same thing. And that's just not what the apostles taught. Read 1 Corinthians 2. We know that God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 15. The idea that God raised Jesus from the dead is a knowledge claim, and it's a knowledge tradition. How do we know that God raised Jesus from the dead? Well, partially on the basis of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which David Hume says is insufficient, or, or rather on the testimony of the apostles, but more importantly, in 1 Corinthians 2, on the basis of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which is immediate to us. And so the atheist might say, well, you know what? I don't believe that you actually do have such a thing. It's the testimony of the Holy Spirit that God is testifying in your heart that he raised Jesus from the dead. But what they have to offer is some sort of argument to take atheism seriously in order to doubt that we are, in fact, uh, experiencing the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And they haven't given that argument. And so until they do, I go on um, affirming that I, in fact, do have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I know this intimately and deeply. And in saying that I know that God raised Jesus from the dead by means of the testimony of the Holy Spirit is just as legitimate as me saying, I know that I have a Bible in my hand. Well, how do I know that? Well, I'm touching it and I'm looking at it and I'm under natural light and I'm seeing that I have a Bible. Well, it seems like my senses are telling me that there's a Bible in my hand. I'm not in the matrix or something like that. Uh, it really is here. I'm hearing myself touch it. That seems to be sufficient for me to say, I have a Bible in my hand perfectly legitimate. I'm in my intellectual rights in doing so. By the same token, it is perfectly intellectually legitimate to say that God raised Jesus from the dead on the basis of the, of the uh, testimony of the Holy Spirit until an atheist gives me a good reason to doubt that, and they haven't given any such good reason. So it's very critical to distinguish this. And the reason being is often when we speak in this modernist way about faith, what we say is, I don't know that God raised Jesus from the dead, but I have faith that God raised Jesus from the dead. What we're saying is we have this sort of mystical intuition. And that's not what faith is. It's not a mystical intuition. When we believe that we have this sort of mystical intuition, we become very poor Bible readers. Uh, you know, we read by faith and we, we open our Bible sometimes. Some people do this and they just point their finger and they say, oh, this is what God has to say to me. Um, and that's really presumptuous, I think. Why not be responsible Bible readers? We, we, we don't want to have this sort of, uh, and develop in ourselves a sort of air of, of, of mystical insight or something like this, but just be sober-minded disciples uh, and serious about pursuing Jesus Christ and not um, trumping up our innate sort of religious abilities or something like that. But this false idea of faith as a as a mystical insight, as something apart from knowledge. Because how do you acquire knowledge? Well, it takes a little bit of work. It takes a little bit of labor. If you want to have knowledge about the Bible and really study it and know what it is, well, you've got to sit down regularly for some perhaps lengthy periods. You've got to ask some difficult questions. You've got to do some word studies and ask others. Wouldn't it just be easier to take the mystical approach? And so often people do. And I think this understanding of faith can be very misleading in that way. It's not a mystical insight. When we say that we don't know, but we have faith and sort of make a show, a kind of romantic show of our great fidelity to God, what atheists and skeptics hear is that we are aggressively delusional with regard to um, our claims about God. And so it's all very unfortunate, this whole modern view of what faith is. What is faith then? 
Faith is simply trust. Simply trust. In fact, most of the time when we encounter the word faith in the New Testament, it's totally appropriate to replace it with the word trust. And then I think we become more sensible in the way that we think about it. Faith is trust proportionate to knowledge. So when James says, faith without works is dead, think about it this way. Trust, without expressing trust, is vain trust. If a friend were to ask me, can I borrow your car? And I were to say, yeah, of course, of course. He says, I'm, I'm in a terrible situation. My car's broken down. I need to get somewhere. I know it's an emergency. You mind if I borrow your car? Of course you can borrow my car. I trust you. I wouldn't ask for uh, two pieces of identification. I wouldn't ask him to fill out a renter's agreement. I wouldn't ask uh, for him to get me a couple recommendations or, or to put a, uh, uh, a down payment down or something like that. None of that would express trust. Um, when we go and rent a car, of course the rental company doesn't just trust us. They don't know us. And given that they don't know us, they can't express trust. When you know your friend, you trust your friend. If this were some stranger that said, can I borrow your car? You might say, wait a second, I, I don't know you. Why should I do that? And now you might ask for some, for some reasons to trust, or you might just tell them no flat out or something like that. If we don't know God, then of course we can't have faith. You have to know God in order to have faith. And the more you know him, and again, I would say primarily through the reading of scripture and really understanding him as he's already revealed himself to us, then we're in a position to have real trust. Consider a situation like this. Imagine a young girl is, her car's running out of gas late at night. She's pulled over to the side of the road and um, not only is her car out of gas, but her phone is on 2% and she knows she can probably just make one phone call. So she's in a really bad situation. She's got a couple people she could call. She could call her doting, loving, extremely responsible father or her near-do-well lazy brother. Who's she gonna call? She's gonna call her father to come help her. For all she knows, her, her brother will just ignore her or say, yeah, yeah, I'll come get you and then forget because that's just the kind of guy he is. She doesn't have faith in her brother. She knows her brother exists. She knows exactly who her brother is. She just doesn't have faith, she doesn't have trust in him, but she has deep trust in her father, knows how responsible he is. So she's gonna call him. That's what James means in James 2.19 when he says, you believe in one God. You know that there's one God. Good for you. You do well. Even the demons believe in shudder. The difference between us and the demons is that we trust in God. They express no trust because they know that their destiny is hell. We know that our destiny is union with him. And so we trust in him. But they know full well that there's one God and that he has all power and authority, just as well as we do. They know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but again, they don't express trust. And so if we think about faith in this way, and get away from a sort of mystical thinking that I don't think serves us very well, and to understand that when James is talking about faith in this book, that he's talking about really expressing deep trust to God, I think that'll really serve us well. So that's what I wanted to say about the book of James. I hope it's really um, edifying to you individually, and I'd love to fellowship uh, together more about this, and I hope, again, that we do this in our life groups. Uh, let me end with some prayer, um, and then we'll move on in our service. Father God, um, just thank you for this 
teaching series that we have, this time that we have together to think about what you've revealed through your disciple, uh, James. We want to fellowship with one another around these teachings. We want to understand them. We want them to transform our own lives individually and transform us as a community and continue to grow us. Give us a deeper and clearer perception of who you are so that we can genuinely know you. And in genuinely knowing you, then we can express to you real trust in ways that perhaps we haven't before. This is a time when we desperately need to be in a position to trust you because of the great trials that we're facing. Many of us are facing uh, health trials. We're facing financial trials. We're facing relational trials. Lord, there's a lot of doubt and there's a lot of fear about what's happening now and what will be happening in the future. We want to be able to trust you. We need to be able to trust you in this time. And we pray that through reading James, through studying together, you will um, build up that trust in us. And we thank you for the opportunity that you lay before us. And we want to seize it and rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> North Shore, I couldn't see you in person. I always love to see you in person. Um, and I hope that happens soon. But until then, um, I hope that you're well. I'm praying for you. And I thank you. Many of you contacted me and said that you're praying for me. I really appreciate that. Let's continue praying for each other. And, uh, and hopefully, again, see each other soon.